0: Our church exists for the glory of God and for the good of the city. It's something that I've been talking a lot about lately. In January and February, I preached six sermons on this whole notion of God's glory and the good of our city and how those things relate to one another. Then, for eight weeks, week after week, throughout the Easter season, we saw how the resurrection of Jesus leads us to labor with God for the good of our city. On our website, there's this little paragraph that I absolutely love. I go and read it every now and then just to feel good. We intend to be deeply rooted in these few square miles as agents of God's kingdom embodying his kingdom here in this place. Our hope is to see the joy and peace of that kingdom come to our city and our valley as it is filled with worshipers of the triune God and the renewing presence of Christ. Now, when we say that our church exists for the good of the city, we're tapping into this deep desire to see Harrisonburg rise to new heights. Of flourishing, of wholeness. And over and over during the past eight weeks, I've been reminding us that the gospel compels us to notice what needs to be done and to get on with doing it. Now there's a catch. Like anything, this particular way of approaching the Christian life can be misunderstood. And we absolutely will misunderstand this positive, life-affirming aspect of Christianity if we do not hold intention with this, the fact that God stands in judgment against much that is in our world. See, you can take this positive, life-affirming approach to Christianity and use it to affirm things that, in fact, God does not affirm. You can use it to stand in favor of things that, in fact, God Himself stands in judgment against. You can go to either extreme, right? You can go into this extreme where you're constantly judging things you should not be judging, but you can also go to the other extreme where you're affirming things that you should be judging. In the sermon last week, I began to open the door on this counterbalancing issue. We saw that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he poured out his the gift of his spirit on his followers so that they would be witnesses to the truth of Jesus. And we saw that as the Spirit of God leads us to witness to God, it will inevitably lead us into conflict with these powerful forces in our world that are judged by God. Now, if you have a Bible, turn to our gospel passage for this morning. The passage that I read just a few minutes ago, John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Now these verses come in the midst of Jesus' last sermon to his followers. It's the final evening of his time with them before he's crucified. Let's start in the first four verses. The first paragraph of John 16, Jesus is telling his disciples that after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, after his ascension, they will suffer. He's being very clear about this. Because they are Christians, they will experience hostility and persecution. Because of their witness to the truth of Jesus, they will experience persecution rejection, and hatred. So on the last night, you can see Jesus. He's telling them this. He's warning them of what they're about to go through. Now that's a quick summary of the the essence of verses 1 to 4. There's a lot more going on there, but that's at the heart of it. Now, why does following Jesus lead to persecution? Why does following Jesus lead to suffering? Look at verse 5. The beginning of the second paragraph. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? Jesus is disappointed. They're missing something critical. And this is going to make their suffering incomprehensible. But if they can grasp this, their suffering will suddenly be comprehensible. When you read the Gospels, the disciples are often confused about Jesus. So Jesus spends a lot of time in the Gospels trying to teach the disciples about himself, trying to break open their assumptions that are leading to their confusions. Have you ever been in a discussion with somebody and the thing that is in the way is a preconceived idea that they're forcing everything you say into? That's what Jesus is dealing with over and over with the disciples. He's trying to break open these assumptions about who God is and about how God works in the world. And one of their biggest preconceived ideas had to do with the Christ, the Messiah, had to do with Jesus. And in this odd little exchange where Jesus on the last night with his followers expresses his disappointment in them, in this strange little thing, None of you is asking the right question. You constantly get the impression with the disciples, they ask the wrong questions at the wrong time. Here he says, finally, you should be asking this question and you're not. And at the heart of this, we, we begin to get a sense of what makes being a Christian difficult for the world today. Jesus did not just arrive on the scene. And when he died, he didn't just get resuscitated and disappear. Where is Jesus? He is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus came from God and was about to return to God. We cannot understand Jesus unless we take into account that he himself did not regard his earthly life as sufficient for understanding who he is. That's what's going on here. If they cannot put Jesus in the context of his pre-existence and what he will be like after he rises from the dead, then they can't get Jesus. Jesus himself did not regard his earthly life as a sufficient lens for looking at him. Knowing and believing where Jesus came from, and even more, where he's going, this alone gives the disciples the optic that they need to see Jesus correctly. This is why we spent the last two weeks talking about Jesus' ascension. And what's going on in that? And only if you hold that can you look at the Gospels correctly. It is a radical mistake to attempt to understand Jesus based on his earthly life alone. If you look at Jesus as a great teacher, as a remarkable human, as a martyr, you will fail to see him Correctly, When you take Jesus out of his context, and what is his context? It's the ancient Middle East, yes, but it is also his preexistent state as the eternal son of God and his, his ascension and enthronement at the right hand of God as the ruler of the world. When you take him out of this context, when you focus exclusively on the historical Jesus, then you cannot see him for who he is is you fail to see him correctly jesus was not a moralist teaching a high ideal of love he was that but he was not merely that he is also the redeemer who because he is god in his living dying resurrection and ascension secures for us our salvation The redemption from our sins. Now this is a minority position in the world today. This is an offensive position. That every other God is an imposter. That there is only one God. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And unless Jesus is saying, none of you guys want to know who I really am. Look, Jesus claims that. Now, now you can make Jesus in something far more palatable that lines up squarely with some of the deepest values of our world today. But this radical claim that, yes, there is truth in other world religions. If there wasn't truth in them, they wouldn't last. But all truth is God's truth. And everything true in another religion is ultimately true only because it is in line with Jesus. And to the extent that it is out of line with Jesus, every other religion is a deception. Now that is a minority position. And witnessing to this truth, in our culture, after a long hiatus... For a long time in our society, that wouldn't get you any suffering. But the days are upon us where that position is no longer congruent with what our larger society values. And it will lead to suffering and persecution. Look at the first word of verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. When it comes to being a Christian, suffering and persecution do not constitute the whole story. In the next eight verses, Jesus teaches His disciples that He will give them the tremendous resource of the Holy Spirit And the Holy Spirit will do two things. First, in verses 7 through 11, the Holy Spirit will prosecute the world for being wrong. And then in verses 12 through 15, the Holy Spirit will teach the church what is the truth. Let's look at each of these in turn. First, verses 7 through 11. Now, this is a notoriously difficult passage of Scripture to understand. But remember its context. Jesus is going away. And when he does, his followers will suffer pain and rejection and persecution. All of the hostility, all of the misunderstandings, all of the suffering that has been imposed upon Jesus will no longer have Jesus there as a shield to absorb it. Now they will take the full force of that. His followers will experience all of the hostility that Jesus had been standing like a shield in front of them and taking. Now they will experience it, but they should take heart because Jesus will not leave them without a resource for this painful moment they're about to go through. In their suffering and persecution, they will have an advocate, the Holy Spirit, And the reason this is consolation for God's people is very important. Now look, it is not that the Holy Spirit will pat you on the back and say, there now, it's okay. Sticks and stones may break your bones. You know, it's not that kind of consolation. Unfortunately, in our English translations, we're at a a disadvantage for understanding what the actual consolation is. Notice what Jesus calls the Spirit right in the middle of verse 7. I'm going to tell you, give you a hint now. He, the Spirit has two different names, one in verse 7 through 11 and one in verse 12 through 15. The Holy Spirit is called something right in the middle of verse 7. Now, in my English translation, it's the helper. Anybody have a different translation? Counselor. What else? Comforter. Some Bibles say the advocate. All of these are good. This is a rich word in Greek that carries all of these connotations. But here's what you need to know. The word in Greek is perikletos. What you need to know is that it carries primarily a forensic notion. It's primarily a concept of the law court. It comes out of the legal system. A major role for a paracletos in that day is it's one called alongside to help out in a law court, a counselor in that sense, right? In the sense, counselor approached the bench, right? A counselor in the sense that Scott and Aaron and Bob are counselors, a legal counsel, an advocate in a legal sense. In verses 7 through 11, Jesus is teaching us about the prosecutorial work of the Holy Spirit. So when we get to verse 8, the word convict, that's a forensic term. It's not convict as in you feel convicted about what you've done. It's convict as in what Aaron and Scott hear in court. It's convict as in guilty. Convict as in pass a sentence. Verse 8 isn't about your conscience. No, it's about what happens legally and objectively. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It has nothing to do with whether the world agrees with it or not. That's an important thing. It has nothing to do with if the person agrees with the sentence that's been passed on them or not. The Spirit will convict the world of three things. The spirit, the paracletos, convicts the world of its guilt on three counts. On its sin, on righteousness, and on judgment. And then in verse 9, he opens up what he means by the conviction on the issue of sin. In verse 10, he opens up what he means by a conviction on the issue of righteousness. In verse 11, he opens up what he means by a conviction on the issue of judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin... Because they do not believe in me. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit convicts, he judges, he condemns the world on the issue of sin. Look, right now, if I asked us to get the back of our worship God, and to make a list of the wrongs and evils in this world, we can all make quite a list. And most likely, most of the items on most of the lists in the room would be right. Those are wrong things. We have a sense of what evil is. But in John 16 verse 9, Jesus shows us that our list of evil would probably not go deep enough because it's not centered on Jesus. Jesus says that the root wrong The fundamental evil in this world is the refusal to believe in Jesus. This religious fact is the deepest moral wrong in our world. Throughout John's gospel, failure to believe is the primary characteristic of sin. And it is the primary grounds for justification. You know this, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Belief is a primary... Now, this is very uncomfortable for us, right? I mean, we are very uncomfortable thinking that a belief can earn us eternal judgment. That people will be condemned based on belief. But Jesus is saying here, now whether you agree with that or not, let's have integrity to take the the literature for what it is. He is saying that the world stands convicted of sin because at its essence, if it does not believe in Jesus, it is guilty of the most heinous sin. Why? Why is a failure to believe in Jesus heinous? Why is it wicked? Why is it worthy of condemnation because Jesus is the fundamental structure of reality. Because not believing in Jesus is refusing to submit to the essence of reality. Refusing to believe in him, to place him at the center of your life as the most fundamental aspect of your life is the greatest possible wrong you can commit. When it comes to defining what is wrong, what is sin, Jesus is the key. It is sin when we have an area of our life where we refuse to recognize that Jesus really is the source, the ground, the sovereign Lord of that area. The most profound wrong in the world is the failure to trust that Jesus is who he says he is. And on this count, there are many for whom the supremest court has passed the verdict, guilty, whether they believe it or not. Verse 10, concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now again, if we were to take the back of our worship guide and make a list of all the righteous. Things in this world, all the right in this world. What realities, what events, what facts are the most right in this world? We can make another very long and largely true list. And again, many of us would be too unfocused at the center of the list. Jesus' career is the single most right thing that ever happened in world history. It is the life and ministry of Jesus that is the most true, the most right in the world. The reality of Jesus, the event of his life and ministry, the fact of Jesus is the single greatest reality. It is the single greatest event. It is the fact of integrity in all of history. I am going to the Father. This is Jesus's shorthand for paraphrasing, paraphrasing his whole career. That's what I've spent the last two weeks preaching on. That's why, when we miss the ascension, we, we are in danger of missing so much of Christianity. That's why, for the last two weeks, I've been unpacking the ascension. It's a triumphal entry of Jesus, the warrior, into the presence of the Father, where he is then enthroned at the right hand of the Father as the only true King of the Lord of the whole world. And Jesus sums up all of that reality by saying, I'm going to convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Over the last two weeks, we've been looking into that. When Jesus arrives in heaven at the end of his ascension, we looked at how in Daniel 7, we are told that when the Son of Man arrives in the throne room of God, And is given the right hand of the Father, that it is the Father's declaration everything that one said was right. That that one, Jesus the Christ, is the righteous one. And get this all of his followers share in that verdict, they are justified follow Jesus in faith and you get his verdict of righteousness in your life. You are declared righteous. You are forgiven. You are made right. And for those who do not put their faith in Jesus, they stand under the sentence of guilty. Verse 11. Concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. In his life, death, resurrection, ascension, Jesus defeated, judged, and condemned the, quote, ruler of this world. The dark power that has kept humans and the world enslaved has been condemned. Jesus has broken that power, death itself. The primary weapon of the tyrant is beaten. All too often, for us, it looks like evil and darkness is the greatest power in the world. Some of you who are Pollyanna, happy-go-lucky, optimists, you don't realize this. But there are places in this world where all the things I'm saying about Jesus being king and darkness being broken, it sometimes doesn't look that way. From the cross, through the Holocaust, to contemporary violence and corruption and sleaze. But what Jesus is saying is that the victory has been won. Jesus Christ is risen and reigns in all appearances to the contrary, notwithstanding. The big trial between right and wrong, justice and injustice, sin and righteousness was held on a big weekend. The weekend of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And when that trial was finished, evil was convicted, condemned. The sentence was passed. And for those who do not put their faith in Jesus, it is a teaching of Scripture that they are in bondage to Satan and therefore they are condemned because their ruler has been judged. They fall under the same judgment. As prosecuting counsel. The parakletos, the Holy Spirit, condemns all those who do not put their faith in Christ. Now, many of us don't like this kind of talk. It's very uncomfortable. We're accustomed to distancing ourselves from raving fundamentalists. We're unaccustomed to talking about guilt. Guilt. Conviction, condemnation, judgment. Those words are negative words in our society. Many of us have heard the shrill harangues of the fundamentalist and we know it's not right. And our culture has a different set of values. Our culture puts a premium on affirmation and tolerance. And the profound sanctity... Of people, So this aspect of Christianity that I focused on throughout January and throughout Easter, this life-affirming, this positive aspect of Christianity, we like that. We want our friends who don't believe in Christianity to hear that kind of talk. We want them to know that Christianity is affirming. That it's not a group of rabid screamers and yellers. But we will misunderstand the positive life-affirming aspect of Christianity if we do not recognize that God does indeed stand in judgment against much that is in the world. So we have the deep doctrine of the Holy Spirit. In, this, in John 16, there's more concentrated teaching on the Holy Spirit than any other place in the Bible. And it starts off with talking about the Spirit's role in the world, not in the church. The only place in all of the Bible where it talks about the Spirit's work outside of the church toward the world. And here we see that the Spirit is not about signs and wonders and miracles. Now that stuff is all true. That stuff happens and it's important. But it's another part of the story. It's not this part of the story. In this passage, the Holy Spirit points to Jesus as the center of reality against which all innocence and guilt is measured. The Holy Spirit condemns the world on its most fundamental ideas. What is right, what is wrong, and what is just. Now, how does the Spirit do this incredible prosecution? How does the Spirit actually achieve prosecution? Well, the short answer is the Spirit does this by working in the church and through the church. Go back to verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Earlier in chapter 14, I think it's verse 26, Jesus says the world cannot receive the Spirit. Here he says the church receives the Spirit. The Spirit does not carry out its work independently of the church. This is what gets us in trouble. This is what leads us into the hot water. The Spirit's not out there doing it and we're hiding behind some shield of niceness somewhere like, oh, God does that stuff, but I don't, I don't have to condemn. I don't have to judge. I get to only affirm. No, well, the Spirit comes to us. It's through us that this prosecutorial work of the Spirit occurs. The Spirit does not carry out His work independently of the church. It will take place primarily through what? Get this, the witness of the church. That's what we saw last week. What happens when the Spirit comes on the people of God? They witness How do we witness? Three-legged stool, our words, our behavior, and our life together. It is through those three things that we bear witness to the world. And as we do that, the Spirit prosecutes. The Spirit's witness is primarily mediated through the church. Look at the end of verse 7 and verse 8. I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. What if he had just left out that line? I will send him to you. I will send him, and when he comes, he will... No, do you get the importance of the middle phrase? I will send him to you, and when he gets to you, he's going to do something in you and through you. This incredible work of the Spirit in the world is accomplished through the witness of the church. And since this is the case... We suffer. Because the Spirit doesn't have a face except for the church. All of the hostility against the Spirit comes against us. Now since this is the case, since it is our witness that is the mediating work of the Spirit, it is absolutely imperative that the followers of Jesus are right, that they know the truth. And this is how we get to the second job of the Holy Spirit in in the first third of John chapter 16. This is how we get to verses 12 through 15. Remember verses 7 to 11, he's called the parakletos, the, the prosecutor, the advocate, the counselor, but only if you mean those in legal terms. And then we get to verses twelve through fifteen, and Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will teach the church. Look at verse thirteen: when the Spirit of Truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Notice a different name; He's not the Paracletos in this section. He is the Numetes alathias, the Spirit of Truth. So the Holy Spirit works through the church, through our words, through our deeds, through our life together to prosecute the world. Now this is deep stuff; it is not done simplistically. We're waiting way out into the waters here. And when the Spirit does this through us, through — look, do you see that your witness will sometimes offend? Offence or not is not the litmus test of true Christianity. Affirmation and tolerance are not the litmus test. Christianity must not set tolerance as the bar to which it aspires. We must define tolerance according to Jesus Christ, not Jesus Christ according to a rationalist, Enlightenment society's definition of tolerance. Now, as a result, we will experience resistance, formidable resistance, because the truth of Jesus is not kosher Look at verse 14. The Spirit will do what? Some say the Spirit's the shy member of the Trinity. He's always pointing away. He will glorify me, Jesus says. The Spirit is focused on Jesus. Jesus is the center of that which is right. He defines what is wrong. He establishes true justice. And as the Spirit guides us into the truth of right and wrong and justice, it is through our speaking out and it is under the Spirit's guidance on behalf of those who suffer injustice, who are on the the minority position that don't get heard in our courts of law, those who suffer opposition, as we speak out what is true and what is right and what is just, we will experience this. So Christianity is, yes, it is deeply world-affirming. That's what we did last Sunday at the Dupitniks into the wee hours of the morning. Those of us who were stout, those of us who could who are actually prepared for the new heavens and the new earth. Those of you who are still in training, you left early. There'll be more Pentecost parties. We were affirming this world. We didn't have to have a sermon on anything. We just drank it and ate it and watched weird kids swim in cold water. No, I'm joking, kids. You know why we had so much fun? Because this is my father's world. And the same God who invented prime rib, invented taste buds. Christianity is worldly. It is world affirming. There is a worldly element to true Christianity, but it is simultaneously, deeply world condemning. And we need wisdom in order to navigate this twin aspect of the one reality. Too often, Christian persecution in our society is the fault of the church, it's for being dumb and rude and mean all in the cloak of religion. And if you want to be dumb and rude and mean, take religion and use it, and it will be a powerful tool to achieve your goals. And a lot of persecution in our society is a result of bad logic and unfriendliness. Too often the church behaves out of line with God's kingdom. And this persecution is self-imposed. It is not what I'm talking about. But in our rejection Of the errors of our fundamentalist forefathers We must not shrink from our responsibilities To witness to the truth And when it is done well and right When we witness well In our words, our behavior And our life together It will, like Jesus promised Lead us into suffering May God help us to be wise and courageous in our witness in this world. Let's pray.